So, in turn, I got very adept at protecting myself. And, in doing that, I realized that disinformation and deception are far more powerful than any barrier you can erect to try to stall your enemy. Because, given the history of warfare, we know all too well every barrier is eventually overcome. Disinformation, on the other hand, though, that's powerful stuff. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast, and we've got version two, better known as Dylan Knapp, and then you got myself, I'm Jonah Condro. So welcome to, I guess this is like the first real episode of season two. Kick us off. What book are we uh, reading and talking about today? So today we are doing No Domain, The John McAfee Tapes by Mark Eglinton. This is a a book, I just want to get this out of the way real quick. Uh, This book is fairly recent, like 2021, and it's just a, a postal press book. I guess it's something that's sort of interesting about this author is he's like, he's not from North America. He's like Scottish. So I just think that's sort of like a interesting little fact that how John McCaffrey found this guy to write his book. And I watched an interview with him actually, and he said he thinks that that plays a part in uh, in John kind of accepting him sort of, you know, that he wasn't just another bland american i guess he just felt different because there was a lot of uh, a lot of other journalists that tried to get this gig right that uh had tried to get a book deal with john mccaffey because he has such a wild story and a lot of the times they just gave up on it mostly because john mccaffey was messing with their heads <laughs> like he says he sent the one guy to like this one specific street corner where he would meet a man holding a newspaper in his left hand and he would tell him some other place to go and meet someone else and then there'd be like somebody there with a gun or whatever and I guess just trying to find the right man for the job or maybe he didn't take it seriously before but uh, to me it seemed like he knew that whoever was going to dive down this rabbit hole had to be very prepared for whatever. And I like the prologue that Eglinton gives us. I think like, so this is the, I've read this book cover to cover twice. And the first time I read it, I was like, oh fuck, now what happens? What, then this happens? And I was just sort of, you know, on this roller coaster ride with this life of John McAfee. And having read it a second time, I was actually not surprised, right? Because I already knew what was going to happen. And I was able to kind of read a little deeper into it. But one thing that I appreciate is the prologue. And this is uh, out of the first few sentences is Mark 
Eglinton calls John McAfee a true white whale. And that's like a reference to Moby Dick, of course, right? Yeah. And like I had said, right, so many journalists had tried to to get this deal. And uh, it's not that John McAfee hasn't done any interviews, right? He absolutely has. You can go on YouTube and find all kinds of crazy shit that he's said online in different interviews. And most of them, it almost doesn't seem like he takes them seriously or it's just too short of a format to really get the story, you know? Yeah, and one thing that Eglinton says about McAfee is he's like this mercurial man, uh, which is like a reference to like the the, Mer- the god uh, Mercury. And one thing that's like uh, sort of characterizes like a mercurial man is like there's like rapid and unpredictable sort of mood changes, which I think sort of like tracks true through most of this book because I think Eglinton didn't really know like which version of John McAfee he was going to get when they sat down to do these Skype interviews over, I think it was like over a year and a half or, you know, it was some time that they were uh, recording all these interviews, right? Yeah, I think it was um, basically on off, but it came to about a total of a five month period uh, between 2019 and 2020. But I mean, he was doing Skype interviews with John McAfee while he was in hiding, right? So he said sometimes he would just disappear for a while. And you'd be like, is this the end? Do I never hear from him again? And then all of a sudden, bing, get a notification and off you go, right? And he even says when he first got a hold of him and said he wanted to do it, it's funny because John McAfee goes, uh, okay, sounds good. I'll call you tonight and we'll talk about it. And Mark Eglinton is driving at the time with his wife, And about five minutes after John McAfee says that, he calls him. And uh, Marcus said himself that he thinks that it was kind of a mind game on its own. Like, I need to see if if this guy is willing to just whenever, wherever be on this story. You know, so he said he just pulled into a gas station real quick and and accepted the call. And they they started getting into it already. But it just shows that John McAfee was like, this story is going to be wild. I need someone that's not going to be like, oh, this schedule doesn't work for me. You know, you're interviewing someone that's all over the world on the run from the CIA and from multiple different gangs. And so you you have to be ready for anything at any time. The author sort of like expresses that later in the book uh, where he kind of reminds us, the readers, like this guy's on the run. Right. It's not like he's just sitting down to do an interview from an undisclosed location. He is doing that, but he's also doing that because he's afraid he's going to get extradited to the U.S. Like you said, CIA, uh, the government bullies, gangs, just like people are just trying to have him collected. So, like, you're not going to be able to just say, oh, when's like a good time for you to sit down? Like if the phone rings, right, the proverbial phone rings, like you have to answer that. And uh, one more person I would like to add to that list of people hunting him that we can dive into a little more later, but his wife's pimp (laughs) also on the list of people hunting him. So there's just a long list of chaos going on. And I think it's, it all just ties into how phenomenal his story is. And, you know, Mark always says like they would do these interviews and it would be a dark room and John's wearing sunglasses, you know, and it would always be like, sometimes he'd be, partly in bed sometimes he's entirely in bed sometimes he's in a weird little stowed away room but pretty much always drinking smoking cigarettes and wearing sunglasses in the dark (laughs) (laughs) such an interesting character so anyways um 
for those of you not familiar, I'm sure almost everyone has heard the name McAfee, right? Probably not in uh, reference to the man, but most of us heard it when we were younger with antivirus software. So he created the first uh, commercial antivirus software in 1987 and ran that company and resigned in 1994. Kind of just walked away, right? So it turns out there's a phenomenal story behind that that man that started that company. So he's a British-American, is a two-time presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. He was born on a, a, a U.S. military base in England, but grew up primarily in, I think it was Salem, Virginia, right? Not a wealthy family by any means, you know, abusive alcoholic father, and uh, grew up some, in some rough conditions, but just overall a very intelligent and perceptive kid, right? Like he kind of learned at a young age that, oh, if I learn how to read people, I can learn how to manipulate people. And it's a phenomenal tool in everything you do in the world. I think he was recounting like as a kid, he knew by the sound of his father's steps, what kind of a mood his father was in. Exactly. And if if the steps sounded a certain way, he could just continue on doing what he was doing. But if they sounded a different way, he knew he just had to pack up his shit and go to his bedroom, right? Yeah, yeah. Just like behave the way that got the best results. And and you, this is kind of a recurring theme, right? We see it over and over again in the way he handles things. But he just continuously grows that skill by spending time around all different kinds of people. You know, homeless people, drug addicts, business people, programmers, like he works for NASA and Lockheed and like he has all these different positions that he gets into. He grows up learning. He can manipulate people. Uh, his one major thing that was restricting him was his father, right? His father ends up committing suicide when he's 15 and then he just kind of has the freedom, you know, and just dives into this wild world, which really starts honestly when he's a kid and he starts, he realizes his like his love for excitement and going out and getting at it, right? He starts stealing bicycles with his girlfriend. But I think the interesting thing to note here, because there's a lot of media out there that kind of tries to make John McAfee look like a bad guy or like a criminal or whatever. And I mean, when you talk about how he started off stealing bicycles, it kind of does sound that way. But an interesting thing to note, and we see it over and over again in the book, is so when they stole these bicycles, they would often just return them or just take them to a different house. You know, like they weren't keeping them. They weren't selling them. It was just for the act, right? Like they just wanted to feel that feeling of the excitement of going out and doing. And John kind of got hooked on that in everything he does. He talks about like the process, like later when he's sort of immersed in his professional career, he wasn't really interested so much in managing a company, but he was more interested in like the process it took to build or the process it took to solve a problem. He wasn't really interested in sort of handling the day to day. Right. And so I think that's very indicative of sort of like his personality is he just liked sort of that, whatever excitement he, he gleaned from that process, whether it's stealing bikes or, making antivirus software, right? Right. And so when he walks away from the antivirus software in 1994, he said that it was just because it had become too corporate. Like when they started with this, they were on the forefront of 
of antivirus, you know, like the first computer virus had come out and nobody knew what was happening. And he just gathered a group of programmers. Yeah. Literally doing it out of his house. Yeah. And giving the software out for free, by the way, which is insane to think of with which they ended up becoming such a big company and made so much money. But in the beginning, they were just giving it out saying like, use this, like we will give it to you and we will give you updates. And it was just to him, it was just that that battle almost like it felt like a new type of warfare, you know, where they were seeing signs of the same programmer and different viruses and they're nicknaming them. And they're just up all times of the day, just constantly trying to battle these, these uh, hackers and these programmers. And he said, as soon as it started getting too corporate, it was out. That was it. It seems like the theme with John McCarthy is it's 100% or 0%. You know, like he either, if he loves it, he's all in. And as soon as it's not 100% for him anymore, that's it. He doesn't half-ass it. He doesn't linger around. He's just out. And we start to see this trend at an early age, right, with his girlfriends. So John, (laughs) yeah. So he says many times in the book how much he loves women. And you do hear it a lot in in, uh, public media that he's a bit of a womanizer, right? Because... He's had so many partners, and then he would just kind of leave somewhat suddenly. But he talks about it, how he would love someone so deeply, and then the second it started to fade at all, to him, he couldn't understand why you would still stick around. You would just move on. And he was always upfront about it, right? He was always ahead of time, kind of say that that's what he does. And then when the time comes, he would just kind of be like, I'm not completely here, so I'm out. You know, and we see it with early age girlfriends, wives down the road, people he meets just flings wherever he goes. It's, it's personal and it's business. It's just all or nothing with John. I guess I, just a quick note, like the way that this sort of book is structured, Eglinton sort of like prefaces each chapter before they get into sort of the transcripts of their conversations. Right. And so the bulk of the chapter is just, you know, McAfee answering questions prompted by Eglinton, right? And so I think it's in one of these sort of little moments that he's sort of leading off the chapter and he calls McAfee like admirable or he calls him like a th- like his he has like admirable authenticity and purity, right? That sort of lends to like the the honesty that McAfee has when he's recounting these stories especially about the women, right? He's just like, yeah, this is the way that I felt so I pieced out, right? He wasn't like, oh, you know, and kind of walks around the question like he answers these questions, it seems, very directly, especially when he's talking about women in this sort of thing, right? So it's it's sort of like a breath of fresh air when you're reading, right? Because you don't get cliched responses. You don't really get these overwrought sort of, you know, pre-scripted sort of answers from John McAfee. You know, there's nothing really... Everything seems very original and fresh when you're re- reading McAfee's responses. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, his age when this finally came about. And then also the fact that he's still on the run and he's kind of getting too old to deal with it. And he has to know, like, he's lost so many resources in, you know, in this endeavor. And he has to know that the net is closing in. Right. And so I think he sort of realized that the time had come to really dedicate himself to putting honest words down to a book because people had tried before and it always fell through or he just didn't care. He didn't take it seriously. This time 
it seems like he forms a genuine bond with Mark Eglinton. Like they almost become friends and Mark is able to push back on him a little bit and pry in places that almost seem where he almost seems hesitant to talk about them. And it, it almost becomes like a, a friendly exchange, which it gives it a really cool dynamic because <clears throat> it doesn't feel so much like a professional interview. It feels like someone kind of almost on their deathbed telling their life story to a friend. Yeah, because I think even Eglinton calls it McAfee's sort of last will and testament because that's sort of what he feels it's sort of become in the later chapters, right? It's It's less of a memoir, less of a man sort of recollecting and thinking about these old memories where it, you know, it really is, this is just what I need it to be. Absolutely. You know, and he's on the run with his wife, um, who he doesn't trust entirely <clears throat> for reasons we'll dive into down the road. And, you know, it's a, it's a very solo experience, right? You can't have a lot of close friends. You can't share a lot of information. And he doesn't have a great relationship with his daughter, the primary daughter that they talk about. Of course, it's been rumored that he has like 40 some kids, but Mark does talk to the daughter and it, it definitely seems like there isn't a great relationship there. So John McAfee really has no one other than Mark to pass down his legacy to, you know, to give out all this information because so much of it happened in secrecy or behind the scenes. And then obviously with someone like this, who's run for president twice, who's been so rich and famous, the, the media gets quite skewed, right? People make clickbait titles. Not that there's a lack of reason to click with anything to do with this man, you know, like I'm sure you could write an article about what toothpaste he uses and somehow it would end up as a murder mystery or something, you know, like it's, it's just nonstop excitement and just constantly asking yourself like, wait, what? <laughs> so <laughs> to progress this story on here a little bit, he, he ends up going to get a bachelor's in mathematics, which is really all he gets. Like, I think he gets an honorary doctorate or something like that in science, but all he has is this bachelor in mathematics. And then he just starts making it up as he goes. He kind of bluffs his way into a programming contract with NASA because programming is so fresh then that there's, it's not like a lot of people are going to call your bluff. As long as you can be confident and you know the math and you can kind of bullshit it a little bit, it sounds believable because it was so new that like they were, they were really on the tip of the spear here with this technology. And he was very intelligent that he could bluff his way in and then figure it out when he got there. Right. And he would do these, make these wild deals. Once he got some notoriety, you know, working for NASA and for Lockheed and a heap of other uh, impressive companies. And he would make a deal where he'd say, look, I'm not really capable of working in an office space. It just doesn't work for who I am. He would say, I'll make you a deal. We'll do like a two-year contract or a one-year contract or however long it ends up being. And he goes, I will come in every Friday to the office and show you everything I have done. And if you're ever not impressed with it, I will come into the office every day. And then he would go home Monday morning, do all of the week's work on Monday, in one day, he would already have planned out everything he was going to do for the contract, did a week's worth of work on Monday, and then would just kind of go be a vagabond, roaming around, doing drugs, hanging out with homeless people, partying, just absolute freedom. Meander into the office on Friday. Here's the shit I did. Bye. And he would do this for months on end for like 
multiple hundred thousand dollar contracts and it just always worked for him nobody called his bluff one of the times he did it for a company that sent him to another country where the whole office basically spoke spanish and he just told the head office that he can speak spanish and then got there and told everyone at that office that this works best for me if you can all speak english because all of our customers are going to speak english so he just never actually had to speak spanish and then he was only there one day a week anyways like it all, it's it's madness, but also genius, you know? Like, you would never imagine this would work, but over and over again, it would work for him. Yeah, because I think he says early on that he figured out computer programming was basically just math. And he was sort of a math prodigy growing up, uh, especially going through his college education. And one thing that was really sort of unique when we get the first glimpse of this sort of attitude he has to the work week and, you know, corporate work ethic is when he was in college, he would go to a lecture and he figured out he was just wasting his time because if he just read the textbooks, that's how he just, that's how he learned everything. So he would just poke his head in every now and again to make sure he was still kind of on track. And he just read the textbooks, which no one else did. And he thought that was strange. And then he'd write the tests and pass. Right. So I, he, he just had this backwards approach, but it just skyrocketed him in his professional career because it just worked, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure a large part of that is like due to the fact that he is quite intelligent. Like for most people, like if I went in to try to get a psych degree, I'm not going to be able to just read the textbook and do the exams. You know, but like <laughs> you said, he was a math prodigy, right? He was very intelligent and he found what worked for him and he just did it however worked best for him. And he just took that through life the rest of the way. But, you know, it was interesting to see the way he would apply the fact that he could read people so well. You know, spending time in the streets, he got an idea of how the world functions, what addiction does to how a person reacts in the world, and then how that ties into the business world. So he would make meetings with companies and he would say, the only time I can do it is on like 7 p.m. Friday, right? And they would do it at like a restaurant pub. And so back in these days, a lot of the business sector was just doing like a ton of cocaine or whatever, or they were <laughs> like alcoholics. And so he said, I have a ton of experience with drugs and alcohol. I know that business people will eventually start diving into the cocaine at a meeting if it's after work hours at the start of the weekend. So they'd sit down, he'd go, oh, thanks for meeting me, you know, sorry, it has to be in the evening on a Friday. They'd sit down, they'd want to start talking business, and he would go, oh, no, 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 you know, like, it's been a long week, let's get some food in us and maybe a couple drinks, and then from there, we can start talking business once we've kind of cleared the week off of our shoulders. And inevitably, they would get a few drinks in them, they would duck off to the bathroom for a few lines, and they'd come back just like all loosened up and suggestible and he would stay fairly sober for these meetings and just manipulate this person like an absolute puppet show because he knows how they work he knows how the drugs are affecting their system and their mindset and like one of the times the guy almost got fired because he went back and they're like you basically gave this guy the keys to our company like this was supposed to be like a contract deal and you pretty much just gave him everything like it really comes in handy multiple times and we see it down the road even when he's dealing with law enforcement right and he seems very savvy when it comes to dealing with law enforcement and authority figures 
where they have some sort of power or some sort of angle uh, against him, right? Uh, and it's in the later chapters where he talks about, you know, you have to act quick. And that's where he's recounting the story about how he fakes an illness to end up in the hospital because he understands that given that if you're incarcerated that, and if they, they have to follow like certain rules that if, you know, if you have an illness then you have to see a doctor, right. And then it can postpone things. So he has this very in tune sense of when it comes to, and he calls it like impending doom, right? He has a sense of impending doom. And so I think it's like, a you know, he's got like a sixth sense when it comes to this thing. And then he just knows how to, how to react and how to play to that one weakness, that one sliver, that small chance at getting out of it. And it just, for him, it works every time it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Like in that scenario, he knew it was a high profile case and he waited exactly until the moment. Cause I believe he was being uh, extradited. He had been arrested and he was being extradited, but he needed a little bit more time for the people that he was with to find a way out. Right. <clears throat> and so he waited until he knew there was going to be the most media exposure and then like faked a heart attack because <laughs> if the media is there, like you said, they have to follow the rules. They have to take him to a hospital. They can't just throw him in a truck and expedite him because, you know, these government systems, these law enforcement enforcement agencies, if you're in the spotlight, you've got to do it by the book. Right. And he knew just how to pull these strings, the right time to do what and and what people would do, how they would react, you know, and. It's just crazy to see how far it takes him, right? Like like I said, this is a two-time presidential candidate with the <laughs> Libertarian Party. And it's it's amazing because like I had never heard of that until we read the book, right? But he was running on a platform of like decriminalizing weed, uh abolishing the TSA, ending the war on drugs. He gets to the point where he's basically just telling people don't pay taxes. He's like, taxes are a scam. He was, it was almost like an Edward Snowden deal, right? He was saying that, that people shouldn't use cell phones or shouldn't use smartphones because he said the apps were being used to spy on people because they know that nobody is reading these user agreements. So he kind of was a bit of a whistleblower from the start of it. And another thing you got to remember here, like when we think of tech giants, we think of people like Steve Jobs, Right. Uh, John McAfee was born 10 years before Steve Jobs. Like he was really at the forefront of all of this before all of these guys came up and got famous before the Elon Musk's of the world and the Steve Jobs and everyone else. He was just like coming up when things were really just blowing up and he saw everything for exactly what it is. We know now that that apps are being used to spy on people. You know, the United States is largely ending the war on drugs in a lot of ways. You know, weed is legal in a lot of places. Weed is legal in Canada now. Like a lot of the things he said that the government hated him for is exactly the way the world has gone anyways. You know, he was promoting cryptocurrency in the early days before people had any idea what it was, you know? And he was saying, we need to use cryptocurrency so we can avoid, avoid taxes because taxes are basically theft. And here we are, cryptocurrency right now is like, is growing to be one of the main forms of currency across the world, specifically for the fact that it's decentralized, right? And years ago, like 20, 30 years before all of this started to become a thing, he was already pushing it, and it put him in the crosshairs of the government. 
I just want to walk back a second. So when John McAfee was starting off and he was like working for these firms doing programming, the computer computers were still as big as a an office floor. Like right. it's not like you're sitting down at a terminal with like your desktop or a laptop. Like he was one of the programming jobs he had is like he was literally flipping switches to put instructions into the computer because there wasn't a screen. There wasn't a display. And he talks about when you know, they first got the punch cards to give the computer instructions. You know, he seems like he died and went to heaven because it was so much easier and you weren't like flipping, literally toggling and turning knobs and levers to program a computer. So he really was kind of on the ground floor of computer programming technology, right? Yeah, like we're talking an entire spaceship of equipment would have like 500 megabytes of data (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. now you know you can have terabytes on your phone so you you think about it like it really paints a wild picture when you imagine what it was like for him in the early days when they're they're doing this early days uh antivirus battle because he would have just been in his house packed full of crazy computer equipment with just a bunch of manic programmers when this was occurring, there wasn't an internet like you and I understand the internet. Because uh, I think he was saying, he he was like sort of in between jobs and, you know, McAfee antivirus has sort of started because it had to, right? Because they discovered the, the virus and they're working for a way to get around it. And he just had phone lines running into his residence so he so people could access this message board where they were sharing files and sharing text and and that sort of thing. And it was like really sort of rudimentary internet that they were communicating through. So it's, it's not even like you could just like log on and, you know, see John McAfee tweets, right? Like you kind of had to have some tech savvy ability to be able to even access quote unquote, the internet of the day. And it's amazing how well he kept up with it as it changed. You know, like I look at my parents who are, obviously significantly younger than John McAfee and like trying to get my father to use Facebook is a lost cause, you know, (laughs) whereas you have John McAfee, like in the end of days, he's like 70 years old. He's running Twitter accounts and he's managing all this cryptocurrency and he's just so current with everything going on in this world. It's, it's really phenomenal. Also, it's not like he's sitting around with a nephew teaching him everything that's happened. He's on the run. Like in hiding and still figuring it out. There's one point he's hiding away in a warehouse running like a secret blog to keep his story alive to help get resources for his escape. Like as an old man, it's it's really phenomenal how how up to date he stayed with everything. When you're saying like, yeah, he's just sort of like an old man, like he mentioned several times, I think to Mark Eglinton, like he's got bad knees, right? And it's something that you forget because keep in mind, these are transcripts, right? And they're they're going to be edited and modified in a way to make it a readable narrative. Thank you, Mark Eglinton, for doing it that way. But he doesn't sound and he doesn't speak like an old man. He's in his 70s, in his mid-70s. He does not sound like a man in his mid-70s. He sa- it sounds like you're talking to someone, like a well-educated tech bro in their, their like late 30s, early 40s at the most. I never get the sense that John McAfee is a mid-70-year-old man at any point in these interviews with him. 
Oh, yeah. And like he's constantly trying to be in disguise. So he's like dyeing his hair and wearing wacky sunglasses. And like it's 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 such a goofy character. You know, like you said, it doesn't feel like someone's grandpa. It feels like a, you know, 15 year old in a wild spy dream, but in the body of a 70 year old. Like, (laughs) so we've kind of touched on how he's been on the run so much. But to get there, I think we should discuss this wild period of time in the middle before things really go south when you just have this tech genius who's suddenly made a ton of money and almost doesn't know what to do with it and almost doesn't care that he has it one thing we see all the time with john mcafee is that he likes money for the sake of freedom but he doesn't really like it for the sake of being rich he doesn't really care for the nice things he buys he, it's not like he's over, overly extravagant with his cars, and if he's overly extravagant with his houses, he spends almost no time there because he's just in the pursuit of some crazy new task, you know? And we see it on one of his trips with his girlfriend where he just they just head off down south through, like, Mexico, and they're just on this random trip, and he buys a motorcycle and then just ends up giving it to someone, like, at a campsite. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, here's this, like, brand-new motorcycle. I don't really need it. Whatever. It's yours. Which ends up causing him trouble because that guy goes to leave and tries to cross the border. And they're like, you didn't enter this country with this motorcycle. You bought it. And he goes, no, no, no. This crazy, mad, rich guy gave it to me. And then they have to contact him because they're like, well, you can't just give like that's someone can't come into the country and then you give them a vehicle and then they just leave with it because obviously they're kind of skirting the process of all the money you have to pay when you bring vehicles in and out of the country or change ownership and registration in different countries. Right. But he didn't think about it at all. He just met this guy and was like, Oh, Hey, yeah, man, here's, here's my motorcycle. (laughs) You know, like just complete disregard for really the status portion of the money and just wanted it for the sake of the freedom. Right. And so when he walks away from McAfee, he obviously has millions and millions of dollars. Like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. He's someone that can't just sit in place either, right? As we've seen when it comes to relationships, uh, his living situation, his job that he's doing. It's always, it has to be that new, exciting feeling, you know? And so he just starts building insane houses, $20 million houses. And we're talking like, in the 90s like <laughs> he he builds multiple 10 to 20 million dollar houses all around all around the united states some of which he said he never even stepped foot in a couple of them like professionally designed by these super famous architects to have this certain feel and then he would get there spend two days there and be like yeah i'm kind of over it like it's not really what i wanted and so i'm just never coming back yeah, it goes back to his love of the process. He just loved sure. building the houses. He mm-hmm. didn't care for the house once it was done. He just wanted the next project, right? Because that's that's what got him off. Absolutely. And not necessarily even like selling them. Like he does eventually when he decides to leave the States. He has a big yard sale, but he says he gives away like one of the houses he built for $25 million. He sells it to a guy for like $4 million, And it's basically brand new because he was just like, oh, well, I need some money out of it, but here you go. He has this huge yard sale with vehicles and equipment and storage buildings and basically just gives a lot of it away for an insanely low price just because he's like well i gotta get rid of it and so here it is of course that comes with the fact that you would still have hundreds of millions of dollars and you don't really need to worry about it but he just didn't care he was never really trying to stay up there he was just like what can i do next and he starts like a sport flying world (laughs) 
just because he got restless. Like he got tired of building houses, went flying and decided that this was his new passion. And he just went all out, built runways all over Colorado, like all over the Southern United States, basically just like, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm just so fixated on it. And it was these weird sort of planes that were sort of like individual. It wasn't like he was in a plane. It was sort of like you're in like one of those little gyrocopter sort of things flying around, right? And you could put on different wings to go a certain speed, right? And Yeah, and for different heights. There's this great moment where McAfee's uh, talking about the hawks. Because yes. the hawks would come up on the wing and they'd, and they'd give you a look like, what the fuck are you? And then they would disappear and then they would appear on the other side, right? And so it was sort of very sublime for McAfee because uh, this is in the Colorado mountains, and I, I'm trying to think of the the famous peak there. It was like something like 14,000. He basically had like this awesome view of the mountain range, and he'd just be getting into sport flying, not even really understanding how dangerous of a sport it was, but just because it was, you know, it gave him that. It wasn't really, I don't even think he was really chasing the adrenaline so much as just understanding and becoming good at the sport more than anything, right? And the process of traveling around the country and building airstrips and trying different uh, wing configurations and and just taking it as far as he can go. Absolutely. Like, and it's so new, right? Like, it wasn't a thing that many other people were doing. And so, of course, in typical John McAfee fashion, he went 100% in and, like, created this huge sport to the point that I think he was, like, in court over it because of the deaths from the sport because it was deemed one of the it was deemed the most dangerous sport in the world at one point yeah unfortunately i think it's his nephew that dies the nephew's like 21 years old and had a passenger and they don't know what happened but the nephew and the passenger just crashed on the side of the mountain and died right and i think it was after that where mcafee was like okay has the yard sale in colorado and basically just more or less gives everything away to like move on yeah, I think that it sounded like it really rattled him. It kind of uh, smashed him back into reality a little bit because he talks about how at that point he realized how unsafe it really was. And like not really with concern for himself because he mentioned how many times he came close to death and barely got out of situations and it just didn't really cross his mind that he was going to die. And then when someone else gets hurt or dies, then it's it, it was kind of like, oh, I see that this is affecting other people. But we reach this interesting point here now when John McAfee starts branching out and he builds a couple houses in Hawaii. So this is where I really, really started getting interested in in the persona of John McAfee, right? You know, before it's like, oh, he's a tech guy. He kind of overcame unsurmountable odds with, you know, growing up in a rough family and, you know, not having much for resources, having an abusive alcoholic father. And he's got a success story. Cool. That's kind of what I imagined we would have heard when it, when somebody said, you're going to read a story about John McAfee. We kind of understand the narrative, right? You know, like there isn't anything up until this point that it's phenomenal and it's very interesting to read about. It's not exactly a cookie cutter sort of life narrative to this point, but we sort of understand what happened, right? At this point, we're like, okay, yep, I get it. He had money, was doing cool things. You know, working these corporate jobs weren't his thing. And now he's like, I'm going to Hawaii. I think you really picked up on something that I didn't really consider having read this book. But I think when he starts build, when he builds the house in Hawaii or the the properties in Hawaii, I think that's sort of the the turning point 
if we could call it, in John McAfee's life. You know, he reaches this point where he realizes how much power he has, and he's always been a jump-to-it, get-on-it kind of guy right away. And that kind of puts him in some hot water. So he's building a property in this part of Hawaii where they're not really a big fan of foreigners, right? They're kind of like, well, you know, we don't really like the white man coming in here and, and just buying up property and telling us what to do and trying to get us to build stuff. He, I guess, decides that he wants to do something for the community because he gets there and he realizes that there's all these drug houses everywhere, like primarily meth. There's these drug houses everywhere, like besides schools and everything, right? So he takes out a bunch of ads in the paper, which basically just post pictures of all of these drug houses and says, hey, these are the drug houses that are right near your communities, right near your schools and all of this, right? And kind of tells the government to just deal with it, which governments don't really like that. You know, when you when you go out and do something like that, it embarrasses them, right? It's like, I, you know, in this brief amount of time I've been here, have found all these drug houses, taken pictures of them, and have shown you what you can do and when. Well, now it's kind of forcing the government's hand. But the problem is, when the uh, drug houses get all cleared up, it turns out that's where a large source of the money was. You know, obviously it's, illegal but the drugs get bought and sold and then people get money in the community from it and then that money gets spent in shops and and uh, you know buying property and whatever and so he kind of dried up one of the main sources of income in this entire community and people were pissed super upset about it so he has to sell his property he tries to hold an auction and the people riot like they're showing up chanting chop him up yeah, they had machetes. Yeah, like a large group of people. He had to hire. He had like multiple FBI agents and hired his own like little militia to guard this auction so he could get rid of his property. But the one thing that I thought was really interesting, because a lot of people talk about John McAfee as if he's like narcissistic, you know, oh, he thinks he can have whatever woman he wants and he has all this money. He thinks he can do whatever. But in this moment, he really talks about how he's like, yeah, you know, I think I really made a big mistake there. Like it was poorly calculated i hadn't thought about the repercussions in the long run i just kind of said this is what i want to do and i'm going to do it because that's how he had done everything but he really admits how badly he screwed up there you know whereas a lot of people in this position would have been like oh well i tried to do the right thing so whatever and i was like oh this is interesting he's very impulsive but still reflects on what happened after everything goes down but we can't necessarily say he learned the lesson (laughs) Right? Because of what happens in Belize. Mark Eglinton, in one of his questions, sort of asked him if if he has a messiah complex, right? And (laughs) I think McAfee sort of like understands enough about himself that he kind of does have this sort of twisted messiah complex, if we could sort of call, call it that. It's hard to say, you know... If he's a good guy or a bad guy, right? Because he does do these things, you know, obviously intending to make things better. You know, trying to clear up all the drug houses in a community. I can see where the good intentions are there, despite how it played out. But then you have a scenario like in Ecuador, when he built this massive condo building because he couldn't build a house, right? They said it would take him like 20 years to build a house. And he's like, well, I'll build a huge condo building instead and then just buy the entire top floor for myself. 
because, you know, once it's a commercial building or whatever, they would build it way faster. So he's like, oh, well, this is a good way for me to get the place that I want. And then he gets there and he's extremely disappointed in the ferry system. You know, it's extremely inconvenient to him. They're always late or they don't show up and it's just poorly run. And so he decides it's hard to say if he did this like for the people, because obviously it helps a ton of people. Or if he just did it because he has entirely too many resources and wanted to fix his minor inconvenience. (laughs) So he just buys out like a ton of ferries and starts his own ferry company in Ecuador and puts the local ferry company out of business entirely. Oh, that was in, uh, yeah, when he was in Belize, yeah. Right, right. I think think he was in Belize. In Ecuador, he built the condo. And then, yeah, in Belize, he did the ferry company. (laughs) Yeah, so... He just puts the entire local ferry company out of business. And, you know, he talks about how his ferries ran better. He only hired locals, right? So it's definitely beneficial to the people. The ferries aren't late anymore. They're always on time exactly when they should be. So you could say that, you know, this is a good deed. You know, he's helping. He's creating jobs. He's, you know, stopping delays for people day to day. But did he do it because of that? Or did he do it because he was just tired of not being able to catch the ferry on time? And money is just nothing to him. You know, it's, it's, you see it so many times where you're like, was this, you know, with good intentions? Or was it just kind of like a kid with an ant farm? You know, like, well, I can just do this. So let's see what happens. And then things really start to go south in Belize. Because he's pissing people off, right? And it's not like... Oh, thank you for starting a business and operating a business better than the other businesses in the area. Because now, like in Hawaii, when he just basically upset the native local economy, right, and sort of embarrassed the local governments, like he's embarrassing the government of an entire country. And it's not just isolated, right? It's, and this is like a government that's rife with corruption. <laughs> Right. So to start with, right, he builds this wild house in the jungle. He said he always wanted to live in the jungle. Well, in the area that he's in, they don't, it's it's pretty uncommon to just have this like rich white man come build this huge compound and just wander around and mingle with the people. You know, like he goes into this local strip club. That was obviously a pretty dangerous place, but John McAfee loves women, as we see over and over again. And he starts spending a lot of time in this local strip club. And it's funny because he says when he first goes in, the first thing he does two days in a row is buys a beer for everyone in the club. And then starts talking to the girls and starts learning which ones are most likely to just slash your throat and steal your wallet. And he says there definitely is some in there like that. And then he figures out which ones are kind of more keen to the fact that if you're nice to him, for an extended period of time, you're more likely to get more out of him over that time frame rather than just what's in his wallet. And so he kind of just has this harem of women and he's already older by this point and he's just traveling around with these young women dressed in these skimpy outfits and, and, you know, he's this rich white guy. So it already creates some turmoil, right? And then these relationships almost become like legitimate partnerships. Like him in this compound with these young Belizean women and they're like living with him and which is completely backwards to the world that they're used to. Right. Mark Eglinton sort of expresses his own discomfort 
with sort of the the various times when McCaffrey's is living with a harem of women, right? And so I don't really know how I feel about this sort of aspect of John McCaffrey's character because it really does sort of uh, grade against sort of any sort of societal understanding of how people should be living together, right? And so I definitely see where other authors and other journalists and documentary filmmakers take sort of this and run with it and call him a womanizer and there's all these sort of alleges of rape and sexual abuse and and all this other stuff. So I I only really understand John McAfee through Mark Eglinton's book, but I, I think I can understand the aspects that uh, other authors might lean on for their narrative on John McAfee too, right? But again, you know, if John McAfee is is one thing, he's kind of a rule breaker, you know, like he kind of smashes the social norms. And I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just how he wants to live his life. To call him a womanizer for this scenario, it's almost hard to do, you know, because you're talking about women working in a strip club in poverty in Belize. So the quality of life that they're living in is not phenomenal. And then now suddenly they're living in this multi-million dollar compound, you know, bills, food, everything's just covered. They have whatever they want. And like he said, he's not keeping anyone there. It's not like he's married all of them or whatever. It's just kind of this weird mutual agreement. You know, it's, it's really the same agreement that's happening in the strip club. They're providing physical attention for money. Now they're just doing it in a different place with a much better standard of life, right? I, I like there's this moment where McAfee's talking about one of the girls, I think tried to poison him or kill him or something like that uh, before things really get weird in Belize. And so he made her go live in the guest house on the compound with no TV. And Mark Englinton was kind of like, whoa, w- wait a second, what's going on here? And he's like, I wasn't like, incarcerating this person they could have left at any time i just thought it was punishment for like trying to kill and steal from me no you have to go live in this other house with no tv and it's it's sort of this weird thing where at any moment like the way that john mcafee sort of talks about like anyone could have came and go it's not like i was holding anyone hostage right it was just like that was just what i told her to go do and she went and did it yeah like she just wasn't allowed back in the main house yeah like she can go live in this other mansion but just not in the main house. And, you know, the funny thing about that is she tries to kill him three times. Yeah. She holds a straight blade to his throat one night. She tries to poison him with rat poison, and then she tries to shoot him in his sleep and misses and hits the pillow. And that's when he's like, you have to go live in this other house. You know, like this is just... Which, by the way, like if you're trying to look at him putting her in this other house in a negative light in any way... I would have moved away immediately at the first assassination attempt. <laughs> like, Man. there's no three-strike policy in relationships in my life when it comes to assassination attempts. <laughs> you know, it's a one-strike policy. <laughs> like, I'm gone. And it's it's funny because he doesn't even sound mad at her. He was just like, I, you, I just can't have you living in this close of proximity to me. And like he says, she could go back home at any time, but she knows the quality of life there is so much worse. And this is where we run into why, why we said he didn't learn the lesson in Hawaii, 
right? Because he's running into these issues with these women that he's living with because a lot of them are tied to gangs, right? And so in the end, like they're not there because they love him. You know, they're there for the extravagance. And a lot of it is plotting. You know, they're working with these gangs to try to kill him or get his money or whatever they can do, right? And so he kind of finally reaches a point where he has to say, enough is enough with this one, right? Like, it's it's too dangerous. You've got to go. But she doesn't want to go back and live where she was before. And so he goes, okay, well, here. And again, insanity. You're dealing with people that have tried to kill you. And he goes, okay, fine. I'll move you back to the town where your family lives. And I will build you a house there. And I will provide all of your bills and food expenses for the rest of your life. <laughs> like, it's mind-blowing. And again, this is one of those times where you're like, can you consider him a bad guy? Like, of course, he is dealing with an inconvenience in his own life. Right? Inconvenience is maybe a bit of a small word, but he's someone's trying to kill him. And he's like, I need to get rid of you. I'm just going to throw so many resources at it. And like, I... It's hard to say. Was it a kind gesture or was he just like, this is this is about the best guarantee to get her out of here? Because you can't just kick her out. She's most likely to come back. If you buy her house and pay all of her expenses forever, problem solved. You know, she's probably going to be okay with that. I sure would be. So the thing that comes up, though, is that the town where she goes to live, when they're building this house, there ends up being a murder right outside the construction site when they're building this house. And he runs into the issue of drugs again. He realizes that this town is, you know, the primary drug trafficking area. And so he kind of does exactly what he did before, but a little bit more forceful, right? He reaches out to some contacts that he's gotten to know that I believe were, they were ex-police, right? The the guy that he reaches out to, and he's even hesitant to mention names of these people, which I thought was really interesting because he's been very forthcoming with everything. And then he goes, wait a minute, like just in the middle of a rant, like, should I be saying these names? Like this, <laughs> this could still be very dangerous, you know? And he reaches out to someone that essentially is ex-police and became a hitman. <laughs> and he says, I need to deal with this drug problem. Again, these are all the drug dealers' houses, like... I need it to stop. And the guy goes, oh, we can make them go away. And he goes, no, we're, we're not assassinating a bunch of people. I just need you to, like, convince them to leave. Whether that's actually what happened, you know, because, again, we're getting it in his words, right? So there's going to be some speculation. Maybe he did just go say, here's a bunch of money, deal with this problem. But he is very insistent that he, like, didn't want anyone to die. He just wanted them to go away. And so... This is some Hollywood shit. The guy goes to the door of every single one of these drug dealers in the morning, knocks on their door, leaves a body bag out front, and goes... And everyone knows who he is, right? He's kind of this, like, infamous problem solver in this area. Like, you know, it's it's basically like Putin from Belize. You know, like, if he doesn't like you, you're gone. And he leaves a body bag on their front door and he says, this body bag has your name on it. If you're not gone by the end of the day, you're leaving in this. And they all leave. They all leave. And don't come back. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, could you imagine being that intimidating? Is there anyone in Canada that could possibly do that? People would just be like, uh, 
no, like <laughs> we're drug dealers, dude. You're not going to spook us. Like, and we're talking in a, like in a dangerous country. These aren't friendly neighborhood Canadian drug dealers, you know, like these are scary guys, like gang connected, scary people. And this guy just kind of spooks them all off. But the minister of defense, like you said, this is a country whose government is rife with corruption. And it turns out that I believe is the minister of defense is basically the head of the entire drug trade. And so this guy suddenly lost half of his income overnight and he is not happy about it, which just puts a crosshair on John McAfee's head. Right. And now he's got gang problems. He's got problems with the blazing government. And again, all he's trying to do is just get like, it's so funny that it just snowballs, right? I have this crazy woman that I need to get rid of before she kills me. I'm going to put her in this house that I built. Oh, wait, there's drug problems. Okay, I got to deal with the drug problems now. And like it went from getting rid of this one person and relocating them to, oh, I'm wanted by a bunch of Belizean gangs and the government. <laughs> like just snowballed. It just, you know, he really doesn't think down the line. He just goes, Oh, this is my problem. This is the immediate best solution. Let's do that. And it really comes back to bite him in the ass. And it wasn't like he was living there illegally, because I think he even mentions at one point that he had a Belizean citizenship, right? Like he was allowed sure. to be there, right? It wasn't just like he was just showed up and threw a bunch of money down and this is where I live. Like, as far as I'm aware, the way that it sort of came out in Eglinton's book, it's like he was doing, you know, the right not necessarily the right thing, but he was doing things the proper way to live in Belize up until the point when he starts, you know, hiring hitmen to threaten gang members. <laughs> right. But again, it just, it just shows that, you know, he doesn't really follow the rules. It's not like he's intentionally trying to break the law. He just goes, well, the rules here kind of make this difficult. Like I'm going to get rid of the red tape. I can just make this happen way faster with my resources. You know, like just, let's just solve the problem. And who cares about, all the tiptoeing around everything, which is probably going to get shut down anyways if you try to do it that way. I mean, he talks about one time he like builds a school and pays for all of the lunches for everyone at the school every day. And it's all because someone called him a doctor in a newspaper article or something like that and people start oh, showing right. up on his doorstep, you know? He's done a lot of great things in this community. Whether you can say they were for the right reasons or whether they were you know, born out of selfishness. It's really hard to say, but in the end, you know, he's put a ton of money into the local communities. You know, he like builds this school. He feeds a ton of people. You can't say, regardless of his intention, you can't say that he's like a toxic portion of this community, right? But you get on the wrong side of the wrong people and it doesn't really matter what you've done. I think too, at this point, I don't, because he ends up, Quitting drugs and alcohol, I think just before he starts uh, McAfee Associates, the antivirus software, right? And he's talking about going to AA and he kind of leaves all the drugs and alcohol behind. And it's not really until in the in the really like later stages when he's on the run that he starts drinking and smoking weed again, right? So I think at this moment in Belize, it's not like he's some coked out white guy. As far as I'm aware, the uh, the way that he he sort of recounts this experience is he's sober during this, during this portion uh, of his life in Belize. Right. When he's like, I think it's like orange walk town is the town that he's 
attempts to well that he gets scares all the drug dealers out of right it's not like he's a rich white guy who's doing drugs who's trying to do the right thing he's just like a rich white guy that's just trying to do the right thing whatever his understanding of what that might look like right and i think that's sort of an important detail to sort of make mention here right like it wasn't like he was just schwacked out of his mind building schools and hiring hitmen to threaten drug dealers right yeah, and I think it's interesting to note that I'm pretty sure it was towards the end of the Belize scenario when he starts getting into drugs again. Like, not as significantly as he had before, but almost as like a coping mechanism. You know, before he almost had, a, I would say, a dependency. You know, he couldn't fit into the world without them, which is why, you know, he can't work in an office space. Like, he can't come in and do a job like a normal person. But at the end of Belize, you know, you're, you're talking about someone that's under so much pressure. Like, hunted by gangs, hunted by the government. Trying to get out of a country when the government wants you is very difficult. And we're talking about a place where if you get captured, you're not just going to jail. Like, they're not just going to extradite you and off you go. Like, it's going to be a bad time. And so now we really hit the point where this is kind of the hot topic with John McAfee, right? This is where we hit the point where things really hit the proverbial fan and this is the main thing you hear about with when it comes to allegations around john mcafee right yeah like if you google him this is these are going to be like the top sort of search results when it's sort of at this moment in john mcafee's life in belize that everyone's like oh yeah did he do it didn't he do it so he ends up starting this research project right with a girl that he meets who's a scientist, but he meets her playing guitar in like a bar one night, right? And she's down there working on a research project, which I thought was really interesting. They're talking about how bacteria almost creates pheromones so that if a, like a virus gets in your body, it can spread via these pheromones that, that trigger the virus and, and help it spread, right? And so she's talking about certain plants that essentially block these pheromones. It's not the exact term, but, you know, it's being described by... John McAfee, who is not the researcher himself, right? Yeah, it's like a quorum sensing or something like that. And it's like super rare. It's in super rare flowers or something that might grow in Belize or something like that. Or they do grow in Belize. Right. And so he basically spends half a million dollars on lab equipment and just <laughs> has her start this research in, in his facility. And so or in his compound, rather. And so... <laughs> they create like a ton of these what I guess would be called a vaccine right in this facility like this is not like a government sanctioned research project this is just kind of going nomad right and well it turns out there's kind of an inside job someone is convinced to report him to the government and the government shows up and goes hey um we got off on the wrong foot, but there's an election coming up. And if you would be so kind as to donate to pledge $2 million to our campaign, we won't have any problems, right? Like this is the kindest strong arm scenario you're going to get in Belize. And John McAfee, as we've said, not great with authority figures, kind of likes just doing whatever the hell he wants, doesn't react very well. And this is another time where he says he made a mistake. He basically <laughs> says, go fuck yourself, get off my yard. Yeah, yeah. So they come back, this time with force. 
and they raid his compound. They smash up all his equipment. They take all of these uh, vaccines that they've made and they just go, oh, it was, you know, an anonymous tip that you were creating drugs here, right? And they raid his place. Obviously, not much you can do to push back on the government in this scenario. It is what it is, right? And after the raid, they go, ooh, sorry, John. It turns out it was a false tip. But uh, yeah, again, if you've changed your mind about that two million, we can just, you know, sweep this all under the rug. It'll be fine. Now, let's just look at this from the outside. Like, let's just look at this from sort of the guy that's just hanging out on the beach. You've got John McAfee. And I understand why the Belizean government played the cards like they did. You got John McAfee basically gets rid of all the drug dealers. In the meantime, he's hired this PhD student to formulate these topical sort of vaccines in a lab on his compound, right? And he's spending all kinds of money doing it. John, it looks like you're making drugs. Like this is, this is like you get rid of the drug dealers and then you make your own drugs. Like this, this is what it looks like. Yeah. You know, so this white man moves into the jungle, gets rid of the competition and then builds a lab. (laughs) Yeah. So it should be like, this should not come as a surprise at this point that he's being raided. Right. Even if it is on a quote, false tip like this, this totally tracks for sort of the sensibilities of the government, even though the government is corrupt. It's like, Oh, here's our, here's a way that we could make this look legit, whether or not that they were, you know, this this tip is legitimate or not, right? Like, this is a way to look legitimate in the eyes of everyone else if you're a corrupt government. 100%. And, you know, I'm sure they could have just raided him to start with. You know, they didn't have to oh. reach out. But he, again, this is what it shows. Like, if the government legitimately did think that he was selling drugs there, it's funny that the first instinct was, well, let's just get some money from this guy and... Leave them be, you know, oh, if you give us two million, do whatever you want, man, because that's all they're trying to do is just replace that money they lost from their drug ties before. Right. And it's so hard to side with the government at all in this scenario because they're just mad at the money they lost. And so now they're trying to strong arm him. I'm not going to say that John McAfee was an angel in this scenario because he does go about basically everything the wrong way you know he for sure could have reached out to the united states for uh some sort of support on this research project to legitimize it but you know if you move out to the hills in british columbia and start a lab the government's gonna show up yeah. <laughs> like even in canada they're gonna come knock on the door and be like uh hey pardon me but your electricity bill is through the roof for the space that you have, and we've got some questions. But then the government really kind of shows their hand, right? Well, and it's uh, to be fair, it's hard to say whether it's the government or whether it's a gang or whether it was John McAfee, you know, because that's where the big question is. And this became a bit of a moral dilemma for Mark Eglinton. So somebody poisons all of John's dogs and kills them all, right? The uh, the way it's set up is to look like it was the neighbor, right? Someone poisons all of John's dogs. The neighbor had previously complained about the dogs, but John said it, it was nowhere near that level of things. You know, it hadn't escalated that much. It was just a nuisance. They didn't have a terrible relationship. But shortly after this, the neighbor's murdered. So really, again, you can see 
where the dots might get connected here. You know, this guy's complaining about John's dogs. John's dogs all get poisoned. And then the neighbor dies. You know, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out who the prime suspect might be, especially <laughs> considering, you know, John's irrational way of handling things all of the time. Like, I I personally wouldn't think that John actually killed him himself, but it's not far-fetched to imagine that maybe he went to this problem solver of his again and said, hey, here's some money, get rid of my neighbor. Whether he meant it that way or whether the guy just went, well, I can make that happen, you know, and we don't really know. But Mark says himself, he goes, like, I want honesty in this scenario. And he even says, if I truly think that John had anything to do with this, I will just shelf all of this, all of this information. And that's the end of it. No book, no nothing. I'll walk away because he says there is no book worth the complications of a homicide you know, siding with potentially the murderer. He says it's just never worth it. And so he was going to walk away and they have a really intimate conversation about it. And he believes John McAfee, you know? So I want to say, I also believe him because nothing he had ever done seemed to me like it, like he could go that far. Right. But the popular media, they love this shit. Right. And so largely it was deemed that he killed his neighbor. I don't think that McAfee does. My sort of gut reaction to this moment in the book, and I appreciate Mark Eglinton for being sort of upfront with his own reactions and his own emotions towards the homicide of John's neighbor, right? Is that if he ever got the sense that he would just, yep, this is done now, right? I'm just going to put everything else on the shelf. And so I really trust the voice of John McAfee, McAfee in the transcripts, and I and I and I appreciate and I find that Mark Eglinton is truthful too. So never once in my first reading or my second reading of this book do I feel that McAfee killed his neighbor. I don't think that he did. I never got that sense. I, it's it's not even a, a sliver of a, oh well maybe. I firmly believe that he that. He was set up like that's just what I believe at this moment. Right. And I don't think that unless there's some other sort of media that I can sort of consume about this, I don't think that he killed his neighbor. And, you know, it's not far fetched to imagine that he was set up. You know, when you look at everything that's played out, everything that's transpired with the government and the gangs, it's easy to imagine why somebody there would want him gone. You know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And this is the tricky moment in the story, right? But I, I feel that the way that it comes across in this narrative and Eglinton's narrative that we just sort of have to accept it that he didn't kill his neighbor because then the rest of the story really doesn't work. If, if read it as, okay, he's saying that he didn't kill his neighbor, but I actually believe that he's killed his neighbor, like the rest of the book really doesn't work. So I don't think that you're really doing this narrative justice by sort of accepting everything up until this point and then be going, no, this is, this is where I stop believing it. Cause I think, I think if you made it to this point, you sort of have to accept that he's telling the truth. Cause if you're looking at this and just being cynical and critical of everything that McAfee's saying, then, you know, like this isn't, it doesn't 
I don't think that you could read the book like that. I think you kind of have to, you know, for lack of a better word, like sort of take the ticket and or buy the ticket and take the ride, right? So, you know, at this point, you're you're kind of on the run with McAfee. It makes it a great story, you know, like you really and it's 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 amazing to think that like you're this far into the book and now you're just getting to the point when he's on the run. Yeah. Like, you know, and this isn't even where he's on the run from the CIA yet. But he really he's really got to climb a significant mountain here to get out of Belize. Right. And he mentions that they raid him shortly after obviously coming to arrest him. And he has to hide in a safe room in his attic for like fifth or for like 18 hours or something just laying on like a piece of cardboard (laughs) and wait out the raid right and then he has to come up with a way to get out of the country i I just had a thought and i'm glad you brought up when he was hiding in a safe room on the plywood and so if you believe that john mcafee killed his neighbor you would think that he would have had made certain preparations, knowing that he would have been raided, right? Made certain preparations to make whatever existence that he was going to live after this alleged murder, right? There's just certain things that you're going to do. Like you're going to be, there's, you know what I mean? Um, But in this case, when he's, when he's hiding, he doesn't have water. And so it's not like he was planning to go into his safe room. He just does because the raid is happening then and there. If we could use this as evidence, I would say that this only sort of strengthens uh, the truth that John McAfee didn't kill his neighbor, right? And I, I don't know because I don't necessarily know what it's like to be John McAfee, but I think that had you committed a murder, you would have taken certain steps to you know, go on the run, right? Where really from this point forward, I think you sort of understand that he's just doing whatever God well damn takes. And he didn't really plan or set things up to sort of lead to the moment when he's like, okay, I got to fucking leave. He just leaves. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about someone who is notorious for throwing so many resources at something when he dives into it. Like you said, if, if he was going to undertake the task of killing his neighbor, he would have had an exit ready. You know, he would have had a yacht parked on the shore because he basically lives on the beach or close to it. Right. So he would have just done the deed, walked onto a boat and disappeared. Most likely. Now we run into the time where he's got to kind of go into hiding to find a way out (laughs) of the country. And again, this just speaks to how unprepared he was for this. He ends up living in the attic of this warehouse of this like small Chinese family that runs like a business or whatever. And it's not luxurious. Like it's hiding out in a warehouse. You're quiet all of the time. They did have internet access, but the funny thing about this is he's online trying to put up his blog to tell his story. And that's another thing, you know, like someone who had just committed a murder wouldn't be keeping the story alive but he's actively (laughs) keeping it alive on the internet via his blog so that it continuously gets attention and complicates things for the Belizean government, right? And he's in hiding for quite a while up there, him with some of his harem, right? And I think there's two girls with him at this point. Yeah, which, like, insane way to try to hide, you know? Like, an old white man with these two young Spanish girls, like... So he has to come up with a plan to get out of there, right? But the funny thing is... He talks about how he had made friends with a lot of hackers in the world over his time in the programming days. 
And he had some ties to that group named Anonymous that everybody knows. They always wear the Gary Fox mask and whatever, you know. And so they ended up shutting down a bunch of the internet right over this time. Because they're like, oh, we're going to fuck with the Belizean government and shut down a bunch of the access to the internet in the area. And he's like trying to reach out to people to be like, stop doing that. I'm trying to get my blog up here so that I can keep this story alive and complicate things for the government. Like they're trying to help, but they're actually just hindering him. You know, like it's it's just madness to think of like the connections that he has and and how these resources helped him. I, I like that this is sort of the moment where he sort of divulges that he has the strong connection to the, the hacking world, because I think he says he has to make like a phone call to someone he knows in Boston. And then within the hour, the internet is restored in Belize, right? Or the section of Belize that he's in, right? So somehow he gets this message out. The message gets to the hackers. Oh, wait a second. We're actually not helping John. Um, Okay, turn the internet back on, right? <laughs> yeah, man, wouldn't you love to have those connections during a power outage? Or like, hey, my internet isn't working, fix it. Like, you gotta wait till the next day for somebody to show up and maybe solve it. He's like, oh, I'll get restore internet to this entire region, but with one phone call. <laughs> so yeah. he starts reaching out to a bunch of different journalists, right? He needs to basically give his exclusive story to someone for their assistance in getting him out of the country, right? He needs a cover. And I think he ends up working with some guys from Vice. But first, a guy comes in that's like, I can do this for sure. And he comes in and he gets there. And during the whole, like, you know, espionage-esque runaround before he gets to meet them, he goes, I'm out, dude. This is terrifying. Like, this is, I've been up way more than I can chew. I'm not doing this. And so he ends up, I believe it was Vice, he ends up getting hold of a group of guys And one of them is very experienced, and the other one kind of fakes his experience a bit. But they manage to get a cover and find their way out of the country, right? And John, during this time, takes on a whole new persona. Like, he learns to use a cane and walk with a limp, and he changes his hair and changes his looks and and really just becomes a new person to hide himself in plain sight, right? And I believe the first place they went was Cuba, I might get this mixed up, but they were in, were they back in Ecuador or might've been Venezuela or something like that? No, sorry. It's Guatemala. Guatemala. Thank you. Right. He runs to Guatemala and this works out very well for him strategically. But the funny thing is, is they get there and they kind of have to play a trick to get in. Right. So (laughs) this again, just goes to show John's understanding of people gets him out of trouble again. So they get on a boat and they're, they're trying to get into Guatemala and uh, he goes, okay, well, we don't have any passports, obviously, because we're in hiding. We need to get into this country. How do we go through customs without getting checked for passports? So he goes, well, I know on this certain time of a certain day, they do what's called siesta where like everyone just takes a break. Right. And the one guy that's going to be left at customs is going to be the lowest guy in the totem pole. And he's going to be pissed that he's left there. And so that's when we're going to show up and they show up and he goes, Hey man, super sorry for inconveniencing you during this time. I know that it's like siesta or whatever. You guys are just going to want to like chill and not do anything. He goes, we've been on this boat for hours and we're really hungry. Can we just wander down the street and get some food? And then we'll come back and go through all this later. Like when everyone else is here and the guy's like, yeah, fuck it. Go ahead. Like, I don't care. I just want to lay in the back of the office. 
perfect timing works out great they wander down the street get on a different boat and leave you know <laughs> they never come back they never have to show their passports like it's it's perfectly strategized as if it was like from a hollywood movie right but he ends up in some hot water because one of the guys that's with him one of the vice guys they post a picture with him like in hiding and john goes make sure you scrub the location data off of that and he goes yeah of course of course and i guess just in the heat of the moment and all the excitement he forgets to and like within 20 minutes of him posting this picture all over the internet there's like google maps pictures pinpointing exactly where they would just were beside the pool and he's like well fuck (laughs) you blew everything you know you completely blew this cover and this is where he ends up having to to fake that heart attack right but he gets he gets tied in with the guatemalan government And he knows that Guatemala has a bit of a clash over territory with Belize. So he kind of leverages his knowledge of that territory for them to kind of help him out. They're like, look, we don't really want to give you back to Belize, but we have political pressures, right? And so he goes, well, I can give you all of this knowledge of the people I've dealt with in the government and the military and these territories. And so they kind of just give him all this information. And they're like, well, in return... We will get you back to the States. And they give him basically a presidential escort. Like they close down the entire street from the prison to the airport. And there's snipers on the roof. He's got a military convoy. He said in that moment, it's funny that this is where his brain goes. He goes, I could have pissed on the officer directly next to me in the vehicle and there'd be no repercussions because I had so much moral power. And it's like, it just... In that moment, like, dude, you're running for your life and you're just like, what could I get away with right now? It just goes to show kind of how calm he is under pressure. But you would think, oh, well, John's going to get back to the States and everything's going to be all good, right? Absolutely not. So he's telling the story to Mark Eglinton while he's in hiding and Mark Eglinton has no idea where he is, assumes that he's fled North America. Uh, But during this part of McAfee's life, he's with his wife, Janice. And it's like, I think he gets to like Miami, Florida or something like that. At the, the, the plane stops on the tarmac and he's like, well, what's going on? How come we're not going up to the gate? And then somebody gets on the plane. He's like, oh, Mr. McAfee, uh, come with us. And so he's like, uh, okay. And so they have to take him to a different part of the airport because there's like 2,000 journalists that want to photograph John McAfee coming off the plane. So he's like, it's just not safe enough, right? So he gets, he's like, where do you want to go? He's like, oh, take me to a taxi stand. And so there's like one sole taxi in this section of like, I believe it's the Miami airport. And this poor guy had no idea what the fuck was going on. Cause it's an airport should be busy. Right. And John McAfee like gets in this cab. He's like, yeah, can you take me to this hotel? I can't pay you. But once I get to the hotel, I'll figure out how to pay, pay you for this taxi ride. Right. So he has this really sort of unique and obscure sort of re-entry into the States. He's almost sort of coming back a celebrity at this point, right? Yeah, they close off an entire terminal at the Miami airport. That's right, you know? So it's not even like he was really in trouble with the United States. It was just a matter of getting back to the States. And what I love about this point is like he's he hasn't even spent a night at home yet, right? Or like in his home country. He hasn't even spent a, a full night in the United States. He's sitting having a cup of coffee on the side of the street 
two prostitutes walk up to him and it's the one that he ends up marrying and going on the run with right i'm like john i'm like (laughs) immediately back into the fire wastes no time the thing i love about that story though is like it's such a funny how did you guys meet story because like he, he like he meets her and he says at this at this point he's not even interested in getting laid right like he's like i've gotten laid plenty he mentions that in guatemala in the prison he was still getting laid like yeah. not not raped but like you could get prostitutes in the guatemalan prison like it was no problem yeah, like he had uh, an internet connection. I think he said he had like nice clothes. He was ordering in meals, right, while he was in detention in Guatemala before he was extradited to the states. Yeah, or like, sent off, sent back to the states. He's VIP, right? And so <laughs> he meets Janice, right? They go back to his room, and this whole relationship with Janice is so bizarre. You know, it's he almost seems very forgiving. You know, we've seen it with you know, the girls in Belize and the one has to try to kill him three times before he's finally like, okay, I have to at least put the distance of the yard between us, you know, like, so he meets Janice and he says when he's laying in bed at night, he can hear her trying to like get into his closet or his safe or whatever to steal his money. And he goes, I'm really glad she didn't manage to, because it would have really ruined things for me. Like, oh, man. the fact that she tried is fine. If she was successful, we probably wouldn't have got married. But she wasn't, <laughs> and so we did. But then they go kind of just meandering around the United States collecting these stash drops of cash that he has left all over the country, right? They just go on this. Like, could you imagine being Janice in this scenario? You meet this guy in, like, a coffee shop or a pub or whatever. He has no money to give you. You try to rob him. And then you get married and drive around the country picking up bags of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, so there's this, it's almost sort of a throwaway moment. So he didn't have any money when he was in uh, Florida and he somehow got a hold of one of his contacts. And there was this guy that showed up with a paper bag with like five grand cash in $5 bills. And he's like, yeah, you can ask Janice. I was like, that's all I had on me was like this bag of $5 bills. (laughs) Yeah. This guy shows up. He's like, you John McAfee? He's like, "Uh, yeah. And this hands him a paper bag with five grand cash just to get him started again. (laughs) It's so crazy that he just like has these connections and these stash points. And because he never really like trusted the government. Right. And you, you see it when we talk about how he wanted to decentralize money and, you know, he didn't want people using smartphones and everything. So for a long time, he had been stashing things away, right? And so he kind of collects himself again, right? In the United States, it's a chance to get his footing, but it's still full of chaos. At one point, he gets wind that like the Belizean soccer team is coming for a game in the town he lives in. And he's like, Belize doesn't have a fucking soccer team. So what? And it turns out it was just a hit squad. Like, they came to try to collect him. This is where, like, it's it sounds like a conspiracy theory. But the way that John is sort of recounting this stuff, you're just like, oh, man, that's whack. Because, it, like, and it just sort of seems that as things sort of progress, the sort of situations get bigger and bigger, right? Where, you know, you, you kind of have, uh, and I, I guess that sort of makes it more believable. And I believe it to be true. That And he just, like he says, he just has this sense of this uh, impending doom, right? And he just knows, like, oh, it's time to go. Like, right now. Like, it's time now. Well, 
so the funny thing is you would think that Janice kind of becomes his partner in crime in this, right? You marry this guy that's on the run and they got married twice. He says the first one didn't really count. He doesn't really say why. He just says that they got <laughs> married twice. So you'd think, okay, you marry this guy, you're on the run from these Belizean gangs and the Belizean government and whatever they can do. But no, she is just also a player trying to collect him. Like her pimp is trying to get her to collect him so that they can return him to the Belizean government for money. And he knows this. He gets into his house one day and he hears footsteps in the attic and he just starts firing rounds through the ceiling and they all go running out because it was, she had snuck her pimp and his boys into the house so that they could jump him. And he happened to just hear it and go get the weapon and fire it through the roof. And he basically just goes like, Hey, please don't do that again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They stay married. He talks about, Every time she makes him a tea, he has her drink some first because she's tried to poison him before. <laughs> and he's like, I love her dearly, but I can't trust her. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. But to be fair, he also says, I don't even trust myself sometimes, right? And so he is so skeptical about everything. And I think that's where his edge comes from because he doesn't even really trust his himself, right? And so I think... When you're able to call anything and everything into question like McAfee does, and if you're able to look at it, especially if you're, you know, a goddamn math prodigy and a programming prodigy, I think there's this sort of his his way of sort of calculating his situation where he can just make the slip, right? And so it's just, it's such a fascinating uh, psychological personality, right, that we're sort of immersed in in this book well and they talk about they uh ended up moving to this house out in the countryside that they ended up having to move out of because it leaked so bad because he had fired so many rounds through the walls (laughs) at noises outside (laughs) like it's like hunter s thompson's house with all the hell's angels members there (laughs) that's right yeah like it's just because he's just always prepared for things to go wrong like i couldn't imagine his state of mind, you know, like you must always be living on the edge to be prepared to fire a round through the wall at any time. Like you're just living at red line all the time, you know, and he gets a contact in uh, the FBI during this point, you know, and uh, has that guy looking into, you know, giving him information about, uh, about what's happening with the gangs. And he even mentions that he reached out to a friend in the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. <laughs> That's and, right. Yeah. And, uh, is like, get some info. And, uh, Mark kind of presses him on that. And he goes, wait a minute. How did you have a friend in the Sinaloa cartel? Like that, you can't just walk past that, you know? And uh, he doesn't really give him any info. He just goes, yeah, like he's like, it's he's not a bad guy. He was just a connection through some things and whatever, carrying on. And like, you're like, wait a minute, what? Like, wait, you have gang connections? Like you have cartel connections? Like, are you the bad guy? You can definitely see Mark a few times being like, well, wait a minute. And like backing up on things and being like, no, 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 John. John, you have to go into that. You can't just glaze past that. That's not how it works. People are going to have questions, you know? And he does push back on him quite a few times. But then, and like, you would think that in this scenario, you would be like, enough is enough. I need to just cool it and stay out of trouble and stay in my country and, you know, 
just play it safe. But this is when he gets himself in trouble with the CIA. You know, this is when he really starts, you know, he starts running for president and he's doing like massive campaign videos that are just like the government is stealing from you. Don't pay taxes, do drugs. You know, like he starts doing conferences where he's like, taxes are a scam. If you don't want to pay them, I will show you how to avoid them. Obviously the government not super stoked about that. Right. And like he goes, he hadn't, he said he hadn't paid income tax in like 10 years. Cause he's like, I've paid $50 million in income tax. I think it's enough. I'm just done with it. I'm not, I've, I've paid my due, you know, and just stopped. And so obviously not paying his taxes, trying to convince other people to stop paying their taxes. It gets him in some hot water and he ends up with a grand jury indictment in the United States. And he gets a connection. He says at one point, he goes, basically nothing can happen with, with my hacking connections. My name can't come up in any way, anywhere around the world without me knowing about it in about 24 hours, any sort of telecommunications. He, he knows about it, right? So he gets wind ahead of time of this grand jury indictment and now has to flee the United States running from the CIA. So that's, you know, that's a big one to add to the list. Oh, yeah. And it was so weird how he describes sort of how the hierarchy played out because it was like the IRS was really on him for the back taxes, right? But then the IRS somehow got the CIA involved to basically bring John McAfee in, right? It was sort of a weird sort of breakdown. And it kind of made me think about my own sort of limited understanding of how how the CIA sort of works in conjunction with its own government and with like the IRS. Cause I, I would never really think that the IRS kind of had that pull to, you know, okay, grand jury time. Oh, okay. He fled. Uh, okay. Mr. CIA, this is the IRS. Yeah. So, uh, about John McAfee, you're like, wait a second, what? It just continues to get more and more bizarre. But the way that John McAfee sort of describes it, it's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, this makes sense. The CIA is after him now. For wait, sure. What happens to- <laughs> and like when you're talking to someone that's been, you know, he's he's worked on like he's had significant clearance working for NASA and working for Lockheed. Like he kind of has a, a bit of a better understanding than most people would on how these government agencies work. And as we've discussed briefly uh, in the, the preface episode and as we'll dive into a lot more with our final book, Chaos, when you think about the government, a lot of people are like, oh, it's a government agency like you know, I would rather be wanted by the police than the Hells Angels, you know, in my mind. Like, going to jail is probably a lot better than just being killed in the back alley. But when we're looking at the CIA, it's not exactly a neighborhood-friendly industry, you know? Like, they have have made people disappear before, you know? They have CIA black sites that you can just vanish into and stuff like this. And especially once you get out of the country, like, they can do some shit to try to collect people or deal with problems. So this is now another group that's not necessarily going to be playing by the rules and he has to go back on the run again. And I believe this was the last time that he came to the United States. And uh, something like that FBI guy that he had met earlier, he was, I can't remember, he sort of befriended him. And then at one point, John McAfee's like, well, how do I know that you aren't going to like turn on me and try to collect me for the Belizean government. And the the FBI guy was pretty much said like, well, 
I would kill you in this office and then I would be out of the office for a couple of days while they had the cleaners come in and clean everything up. And McAfee was like, just the way that he described it, he's like, I knew that, you know, I would already have been dead in his office if he wanted me dead, right? Because he, he would have just shut the door and brought in his cleaning team to, you know, deal with like the fact that this FBI guy had just killed him, right? So he knew that he could trust this FBI guy. Because if, if he was going to do it, he would have already done it, right? Yeah, he says, like, regardless of everything else happening, he goes, John, you have a gun on you every time you come in here. Like, the that's, hardest yes, part of yeah. me dealing with this would be getting cleaning staff in here. <laughs> like, that's, like, the janitorial portion would be the hardest part, not the killing you part, <laughs> yeah. you know? Which is, like, it's weird that that was a comforting statement to him. He's like, oh, oh, good, that's what I wanted to hear. Uh, what? So now we kind of run into the times where like John McAfee's getting quite old, you know, and he's, he's on the run. He's really got to dive into the crypto world. And I thought it was interesting because Mark doesn't really get into the full extent of, of uh, John McAfee's crypto connections. And I've seen him mention it on other interviews. I actually watched a really interesting, interesting interview with him and another guy that is like a tech guy. He understands that world. And that guy even said, he's like, I'm really glad that you didn't get into that portion because despite the fact that it is a huge part of, you know, the persona of John McAfee, he's like, you probably would have butchered it and it would have sucked for all of us that are really big in that world. (laughs) But like, so from what I understand, John McAfee had like tattoos on his body connected to certain obscure cryptocurrencies and ones that were you know, to support his claim that like, I will never commit suicide. Like he goes, he said publicly, if you ever find me dead in a jail cell, I guarantee you, I did not commit suicide. Like he had the word whacked tattooed on his chest to signify, like, if you find me dead in the prison cell, I was murdered, you know? And he has all of, he posted these like obscure coded Twitter posts that were like giving hints to the fact that he has, money and documents stashed away that would be leaked if he was ever murdered and yeah, it was the dead man switch right exactly right and so there's these huge questions that are left behind that people don't that people don't know and they're like so what is the truth you know does he have these stashes somewhere does he have all this information like what does john mcafee have and the story is so wild that it's so it's so hard to know what to believe. Like, was was this a failsafe? Like, it would have been a genius failsafe, right? Because it's not hard to believe that he would have incriminating information on a lot of important people with his hacking connections, right? Well, he does say that the Belizean government accused him of stealing uh, Belizean government files. He says, that's not true. He's like, I did donate laptops to the government. But he says, I didn't steal information. I just made copies of it. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Like, and I genuinely believe that he does not think that that was wrong. Like he doesn't think it was morally wrong. He goes, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like the, the, uh, the moral compass of John McAfee in my mind is just spiraling. Like it's just tacked out at all times. Like I have no way to figure out which way he's going. I think his moral compass is exactly like the compass in Pirates of the Caribbean, where you look at it and it just points wherever you want to go. That's right. (laughs) Like, oh, in this situation, my moral compass points here. You know, like, 
teaching people how to not pay taxes. Like <clears throat> if he knows how to not pay taxes, he could just do that himself. Doing conferences to teach, teach people to not have to pay taxes doesn't really help him at all. If anything, it's a huge part of why he got the grand jury indictment, right? He's just bringing more heat onto himself. But in that scenario, he thought the government was doing something immoral and he needed to write it in some way. So it's, you know, I've, I, no matter how many times I've gone through this and interviews I've watched with him and interviews with Mark, I really cannot figure out if there is any concrete foundation to the morality of John McAfee. Well, I don't think that there is. And I think that's sort of part of his psychology, right? And I think that what, I think that's part of what makes him so slippery to the Belizean authorities, to gang members, to law enforcement agencies and that sort of thing. His morality is almost like a chameleon, right? Where whatever situation he's in, it'll just morph or change into what it needs to be for whatever situation that he finds himself in, right? Because I think for McAfee, he was always making the right decisions according to whatever his morals were at the time. But I think his morals are definitely sort of plastic in that they can sort of change around to what they needed to be. And so for him, I think he was always making the right choice, even though his morals might have changed from situation to situation, right? The other interesting thing about the narrative that Eglinton gives us in these transcripts is John McAfee's very much, you know, the he calls him like the king of misinformation, right? Or of disinformation and deception. And so... I would have to say that when it comes to sort of like these big questions of the murder and, you know, sort of John being on the run and his uh, his sort of demise, right? I think, you know, I think that there's enough there, there's enough truth that we get in, in what he's sharing with Eggleton that you're kind of like, yeah, maybe he just, maybe he's just like completely gone dark now, right? And he's just, you know, he just made everyone look one way when he's running the other direction, right? So, and I think that makes, I think it makes a better story when, when you sort of think of McAfee in those terms, right? Where he just didn't get, you know, like you said, if he was ever found in a jail cell, you know, uh, hanging by a rope that, you know, it wasn't suicide, right? So I don't know. It's just, I, I have a smile on my face now and I just, I, uh, it's, it's very, it's a very Hollywood sort of ending, right? Like there's people out there that are absolutely obsessed with figuring out, you know, kind of the McAfee riddle. Does he have something stashed away? Has something just fallen apart and it hasn't worked out yet? Or I don't know if I believe he does. You know, when you look at the faked heart attack, the safe room, you know, any of these things, so many things that he does just um, they buy time because he knows if he has a little bit more time he can wiggle his way out and he does it over and over and over again, right? And if you're on the run from people with immense amounts of reach, you know, maybe not the gangs so much, but absolutely the Belizean government, the American government, 100% <laughs> political leverage to to be able to get someone to extradite John McAfee, it, there's so much they can do, right? <clears throat> and so if they're trying to get him some of them just trying to kill him, the best way you could buy yourself time is ensuring that you have to be extradited, right? And by saying you have this dead man switch, 
it pretty much guarantees that they can't just come assassinate you, right? They have to go through the proper channels and get him back to the United States or get him back to Belize to ensure their own safety if they were to try to kill him, right? So it just buys him a little bit more time. But when you think of it that way, it's interesting to see what happened in the end, right? And I think we've covered enough spoilers in this that it's not really going to be a shocker if we discuss how things came to be, you know? I mean, although there is certainly things that we've skipped out on, uh, you know, the yoga cult and like the time he had someone shoot a sniper rifle at him on the highway. There's so many other things that we just haven't even dipped into because we would need to do three episodes. But when you look at it through the lens of everything he's doing is buying time, like you said, the the master of disinformation, it's smoke and mirrors, it's the ball in the cup game, you know, look here while I do this, and and until he has the opportunity to kind of get a foothold and jump off somewhere else. When you look at it that way, so how things came to an end with John McAfee. He ended up getting arrested in Barcelona, right, in Spain. And they end up finding him dead in his prison cell. But it was while he was being processed for extradition back to the United States. And during that processing time is where he's almost always made his escape when he's been arrested. Like, it's the perfect window for him. It's always worked out. You know, he's been able to pull some strings or spend some money or reach out to a contact somewhere. It's exactly the best time for John McAfee when it comes to incarceration is that extradition processing period. And that's when they find him dead in prison. And so it's like, it's so hard to believe that he would commit suicide at that time because he was in a situation that has always worked out for him. It's always been in his favor. And he almost intentionally puts himself in that scenario because he knows how to get out of it. So do I believe that he committed suicide or do I believe that he was assassinated? When we're talking about the CIA, it's not hard to believe that he was assassinated. Eglinton's sort of feelings of it, he had like a a really strong reaction when he read the news because I think at this point... The, the book was more or less done, except for sort of the last little bit that he added when he talks about McAfee getting arrested in Spain and the extradition and all that and and finding that he, you know, quote, committed suicide. So he had like this really sort of strong reaction because I don't even think that he really necessarily believed it, but he, he sort of, and he had trouble doing interviews in the beginning, he said, because uh, he just couldn't quite find the words. And so I think if you look at the author, who had a lot of FaceTime with John McCarthy, and sort of what we understand through the narrative in the transcripts, I think that there's enough that you can kind of go, yeah, maybe maybe he was just assassinated, right? Because I think at that point, you know, enough strings have been pulled, and it's like, okay, this guy's causing fucking damage. We need to fucking, you know what I mean? And I believe there to be, you know, he probably had a lot of sort of uh, – technical resources, let's call them, right? Where you, you don't necessarily have expensive washes and watches and cash stashed in a coffee can under the ground. You have like data and, and that sort of thing stashed on wherever they might be held, right? So I would lean towards that ending, right? So I'm, I don't know. I don't get the sense that he would have actually committed suicide. I, I, I think it, if anything else, it's sort of like an Epstein sort of Epstein thing where, you know, you're found hanging in your jail cell, right? 
Yeah, and who knows, maybe they had intercepted those sources of communication and had figured out what the dead man draw what did the dead man switch was, you know, like they they could have already compromised those connections uh with the time that he had been on the run. And it's it's hard to say nobody really knows how many resources he had left. You know, he might have been running dry at this point and not able to keep up those connections. It's really it's really really hard to say what would have happened. But the interesting to think about is that interesting thing to think about is that he never really gave a wholehearted permission to release the book, right? Because they had never actually come to like a contractual agreement in how it was all going to go down. They had talked about how like there was no paper agreement. It was just kind of verbal in portions and John was so stubborn on his portion being paid in an obscure cryptocurrency to like a remote account, like a remote wallet online that he could access that he couldn't get tracked through, right? Genius way to do it. The problem is publishers aren't really a fan of that. And so they hadn't even come to a conclusion as far as the book went because they couldn't figure out how to come to agreement with John. And he refused to do it any other way, which... I think just goes to show how dug in he still really was and how set he was on riding out being in hiding, you know, like he wasn't giving up yet. He wasn't, you know, giving any slack. He was still 100% committed to being in hiding. And they even said that the place that they've ended up figured out where he was hiding during all of these uh, Skype communications and it was in like an old hotel that had actually been repurposed as like a crypto mining facility. You know, it's entirely possible that he still had a ton of resources they wouldn't know about because again, it's all decentralized and it was super obscure cryptocurrencies, you know? It's not like this was all Bitcoin. And so it's it's really hard to say, but I think Mark just felt like he had a duty to tell the story in the end, you know? And he's taken some heat for it from other people close to John and, you know, people speculating on the internet, I couldn't imagine how you wouldn't release the story. You know, like this is a once in a lifetime. I don't think there's any rock star in the world that you could interview that would, that would give you this kind of a phenomenal tale. This book really left me wanting more about John McAfee. We, we sort of mentioned it in passing about how he sort of had like this yoga retreat when he was living in Colorado he wrote four books on yoga, and you can buy them on Amazon right now. He went online afterwards and told people not to buy them. <laughs> Which only makes me want to read them even more. Like I know. I, I would read a yoga book by John McAfee. Absolutely, I would. 100%. Yeah, like, that would be like Hunter S. Thompson's workout routine. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> especially since he admitted that the only real motivation he had for the starting this yoga ret- retreat was to get laid. Yeah, <laughs> because he was in a remote part of Colorado and was like, well, it's really hard to get laid out here and you have to travel a long ways, but attractive women like yoga. And so I just started a yoga retreat and like he ended up just letting everyone do it for free. Like a ton of people were there for free. They became like pseudo staff members and there was just tons of people living there, which was basically just him and once again, a harem of people that had come there and almost turned into a cult to the point that he was just like, again, almost became too corporate, I guess. And he was like, yeah, I'm out. This is weird now. And just shut it down and just walked away, you know, like he does with everything else. It's a wild story, man. Like I, there's no way to summarize it. 
I I didn't know that much about this when we got into this. I had heard little little bits of commentary on podcasts, largely speculation, and I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And I like, I still, I I might even end up reading it again after um, after we're done season two because like like I was telling you the other day, I was driving back home from work right <clears throat> on an eight hour drive. I'm listening to the audiobook. And I'm just like trying to wrap my head around this human being and like what it means to be John McAfee. What does John McAfee stand for? There's no linear path of John McAfee. He was just all over the place. You know, his story sounds like it could be the story of 10 different people, you know, because he was just living it 100% until the day he died, which was at a very old age, you know? And I ended up messaging my girlfriend and was like, when I get home, I just have to rant to you about this book. Because like I have so many thoughts in my head and I've been on this long drive solo and I just cannot figure out what's happening in my mind and I need to just put it all out there into the ether and just vocalize it. And I just went on this crazy rant. And even then, usually for me, that works really well. You know, I just go on a rant and then I'm like, ah, yeah, you know what? I think I know where I stand on this. I think I was more lost afterwards. I, I just like, I just can't figure him out. You know, the relationship with his wife, the relationship with the girls in Belize, is multiple wives, you know, that we didn't even cover all the crazy scenarios there. Like there's so much and his inability to stop and just be like, you know what? I'm back in the States. I could just live as a rich man for the rest of my life very comfortably. And he was not capable of it. I think he would have been happier being on the run the way he was than if he had just stayed in the United States and just wrote it out. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense that he sits still very well. You know what I mean? There was probably definitely moments in his life that were kind of chill, but I think uh, when you sort of zoom out on his life, there was no, there was nothing about his life that was sort of static that I got the sense of, right? I think he was, I think you're right. I think uh, he was always going to be sort of a rolling stone, right? In that regards. 100%. So continuing with our theme here, what do you think you would give this for an octane rating? Oh, I've been thinking about this. I'm I'm going to give so John McAfee's life is definitely a 94. I'm going to give this book a 91 octane reading. And I think there's some limitations when you're writing basically a transcript. I'm kind of set on the 91 just because I would have liked to have seen the author be more of a character in this book. And so whatever choices he made, he made them, and we have the book that we have today. And I do like that he sort of would preface, you know, each chapter and jump in, I think, when he thought necessary. I would have liked a little bit more of a a richer insight from the author when he's sort of conducting these interviews, because it's definitely John McAfee. It's his voice. It's his story. You can definitely tell that Mark Eglinton sort of takes a back seat. I think the story sort of suffers a little bit because there was a really good opportunity for Mark Uglington so to sort of uh, expand on, I guess, the man, just strictly based off of his interactions, right? 91 is still a hell of a good rating, so <laughs> go out and read this book. Yeah, I. you know what? I was going to say I'm going to give it a 94 through and through, but to your point, I think... I think it's a better way. I was thinking more of the story, right? And you're 100% correct. The story is a 94, without a doubt. It's phenomenal. And for me, I love it because, you know, there's so much mystery and we still don't really know. And again, you have to remember that, like, we've got a man who's so professional with disinformation 
and who is still on the run when this is happening. And so, you know, who knows how much of it is actually real? Definitely some of it could have been tactics, you know, like he's hoping this information is going to get out before his demise or while he's still on the run and, you know, he can use it as a strategy. I feel like he was being truthful about almost everything in my mind. You know, obviously it would have been nice to see the Skype communications because then you could get his reaction and like especially in the times when he goes wait a minute like he catches himself right he just starts going on a rant and then he goes wait a minute should I be talking about this you know is this safe for me to speak on and so I think he really was just letting it flow but we never know and we don't have any answers at the end you know like we got his story and then there's you know some stories of uh from the disgruntled people in his life and then there's people that speak very highly of him and you really none of it's concrete but it's it's a fascinating story and it's such a fun roller coaster ride like i would love for someone to turn this into like a limited series you know but as far as you were saying about the book itself you're absolutely right like it's not like we're getting a display of like literary prowess right like and but i don't think I'm not saying that to discredit Mark Eglinton. I think he didn't really have any other way he could do it. You know, like all you have is Skype interviews with this man. And I think it would do it a disservice to write it out any other way. But yeah, it's basically a transcript, right? So you can't say it's like phenomenal writing or whatever. Um, I'm going to agree with you on uh, the stories in 94 overall is a 91 highly recommend i've gone through this about two and a half times now between book and audiobook just like piecing things together and i guess trying to reread and figure out if that's actually what i read you know <laughs> wait is this actually what happened and like, missing there's so many details and so many people involved in so many different chapters that you're kind of like wait a minute how does this overlap and john mcafee talks a lot in the way we do, right? He jumps and he rambles and he gets off on tangents and he loses track of himself. And cause it's not like he sat down and wrote a book himself. He was just talking. And so he gets lost all of the time branching out. It's absolutely worth checking out. There is also a documentary about the story, but from what I understand, from what I have read, the documentary kind of has a narrative, right? And it, it paints its own picture. So, if you're going to watch it, I would also read the book, right? There's always, you know, each side and the truth, right? The truth we're never going to get, but it's good to know both sides of this. Both opinions really is all it is. And you're just left with this amazing ending where you kind of get to run off with your imagination. Before we sort of end this episode here, uh, do you want to share what we're reading in the episode after? Or in the next episode, I should say. Yes, I am very excited about this. So this is going to be uh, a very special episode for us since it will be our first guest. So we are doing the book Runaway Devil. Now, this is a a, a crime that happened actually quite near to us, you know, in uh, southern Alberta, Canada. And so it is a story that we heard growing up. And then it just so happens through the podcast world, I had made a connection uh, a friend of mine that is quite close to the story, right? And so, you know, we're almost going to get to dive in and like having a character from the book. And it's 
this one is it's going to be a totally different format really from how we do it because we're it's not just you and me bouncing ideas back and forth you know it's it's us having someone else there with some extra information and i wish we had a guest for no domain because i would have loved to have somebody here to be like well let me clarify some of this fucking madness for you you know so it's it's going to be really cool to have have that connection and be able to get some insight and and see how much of it is different from the book you know because a lot of the time you know the the author has their own opinion and they speculate in their own way a little bit intentionally or not it almost always happens and so now we've got a closer connection and you know this is like i said this is our one closer to home any final thoughts on no domain yeah fucking read it fucking read it man it it will spiral your entire world if you ever thought that you could really read everybody and understand everybody you just have not run into a john mcafee i think he could outmaneuver anyone socially and uh I, I think he kind of lived on top of the world in his own way. So I think everyone owes it to themselves to dive down this rabbit hole. And I know, I personally know, we have some mutual friends that if they read this book, they would spend weeks on Reddit afterwards. <laughs> Just like, I need more, you know? So, yeah, go out and read it. I mean... Obviously, if you're at this point, you've listened to the podcast and you know just how wild it is. So and there's still so much more like I I typed so many notes out for this and there's still every time I went back through it, I was like, oh, there's this and there's this like I almost was going to say we should do a two part episode. So go out and check this out and uh, you will not regret it. If you need to get a hold of me, you can find me the best place is Instagram just at Jonah Condro slide into my DMs and let me know what you're reading. And uh, let me know what you think of this podcast episode or this podcast in general. And uh, hopefully your feedback will help sort of steer steer the podcast into safer waters or better waters or clearer waters. So any little bit of feedback helps and it's only going to make the podcast stronger moving forward. Absolutely. And I'm on Instagram, enlightened underscore dirtbag. Of course, like Jonah said, always happy to get some feedback. This book, especially like... There's so much other information out there and so much speculation. Like if you've heard something else, if you've got other information, I would love to just dive down a rabbit hole with someone. Cause I know there has to be other people out there that are like, I was following this at the time. Or like, if you're in the crypto world, which Mark didn't dive into, absolutely shoot me a message and be like, these are my thoughts on this book. Or if you want, just once you're done reading it, just send me a message in all capitals that says, what the fuck? Cause that's going to be all that's on your mind. You know, (laughs) and, you know, make sure you tune in for the next episode. It's going to be a really special one. Uh, It's going to be a totally new experience for us. And we've got a lot of great books coming up this season, ending with a really heavy hitter. So uh, stay tuned and uh, reach out to us. And thanks for joining on the ride.